9K News Podcast listeners, I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Today is Tuesday, November 24th, and joining me in the studio is Tim Franco to talk about his photography project, Unpersons, and other work. But before we do, I'd like to tell you all a little bit about NK News. Founded in 2010 by CEO Chad O'Carroll, Korea Risk Group maintains two information services about the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or North Korea, called NK News and NK Pro. NK News publishes several news stories daily about developments and information in, from, and about North Korea. Meanwhile, NK Pro is a premium-level platform for members who need more detailed information, qualified analysis, and hard-to-obtain data in a timely manner. Korea Risk Group publications are entirely funded by subscriptions, giving NK News and NK Pro full independence in our reporting and analyses. The two publications are widely considered by North Korea watchers in governments, business and academia to be the best North Korea-focused outlets available. We'd love for all of you to become subscribers to NK News if you haven't already. And if your institution or company wants to get more exclusive information and research tools, think about upgrading to NK Pro. Why not try a year's subscription today? Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and leave a review at iTunes. We need more reviews so that more audiences will be potentially exposed to this podcast. Now, my guest today, Tim Franco, is a French-Polish photographer born in Paris in 1982. In 2005, he moved to China, where he started documenting the urbanization and its social impact there. In 2016, Tim moved to South Korea, where he started working on a long-term project about North Korean defectors. Thank you for joining me today, Tim. Thank you, Jacko. Tell us a little bit about your early work. How did you become a photographer and what made you move to Asia? When I was a student, I just wanted to get out of Europe and experience something different. And uh, I had no idea where I was going in my life. I actually studied uh, an engineer degree, but uh, earlier on also I was a big fan of music. And actually this is how I got started in photography because in the late 90s, early 2000, I had a music magazine Mm. and I was uh, doing all of it uh, by myself with some other students. Yeah, we needed to have some photos for the the article. So I just, uh, back then I just bought a disposable camera and I was <laughs> going to concert and shooting concerts and right. uh, well, so it was self-published and self-distributed uh, it was an online magazine and, okay, uh, an online but, magazine. and back then it was something quite new because you know uh, in right. late 90s I mean yeah the internet is not that far back huh? because before that they had the sort of a, the zine culture yeah. of self-publication and self-distributing but you were one of the first to go online yeah so so that uh, attracted a lot of the the music house back then so they were inviting me here and there that was a it was an awesome time um and you were very young uh yeah i was uh, 18 19 so yeah it was very fun um but then uh, yeah i kind of studied engineering because i didn't have any idea what to do because i had no idea what to do i also uh, had the opportunity to go to this uh do this program in shanghai to learn chinese for a few months mm. and uh, discover something new and uh, my idea was to go there just for uh about a half a year and then uh, go back to go back to France to actually change my study and mm. get into political science oh wow uh, but uh, yeah China was just too fun back then and uh, instead of six months I stayed for 11 years yeah and you went before the uh, the Beijing Olympics yeah yeah was, and you stayed until well after it yeah and you took a lot of photographs particularly in one city uh, uh, help me with the pronunciation there Chongqing Chongqing yeah that's correct okay uh, so in the uh, in the Japanese colonial period uh, the Korean government in exile first started in Shanghai but then had to leave Shanghai and ended up in Chongqing yeah where they had the capital yeah uh, that, uh, that's right the uh, the the Chongqing government the Chongqing capital right so the, uh, the the Korean government in exile was there for a time and then uh, 
I think I think that might have been where it ended in World War uh, at the end of World War Two, and then uh, some of them came back to Korea. That's a good. Uh, that's a good thing to know to promote my my new project. I can kind of link it to my exactly, old project. Exactly, link it to the old one. Yeah. Okay. So you uh, you particularly focused a lot on uh, the urbanization process happening, uh, so the the growth of cities, the, the change, the transformation. Yeah, I mean, I always fall into the obvious stories. Like uh, I was in China. I mean, I started first to cover the, the actually uh, the the music scene back then. That's how I got back into photography. But that's a side story almost. And uh, while I was doing that, I, I kind of uh, picked up uh, an old uh, camera where I was more like taking my time. Uh, I started in Shanghai documenting, you know, uh, back in 2009, 2010, that was the year leading up to the World Expo in Shanghai. They were destroying part of the city and reconstructing. I mean, it was a big change for the city and I was kind of starting to document that without knowing where exactly where I was going. Mm. But then I quickly realized like there was many great photographers who were doing this at the same time as me and uh, like uh, Greg Gerard and some others like this. And um, I thought like I should try to bring something new. And uh, back in 2010 or nine, I started travel to like secondary cities that were growing even faster. And uh, that's how I stumbled into Chongqing. And the, the first time I arrived in Chongqing, I was like, wow, okay, this is where I'm going to do my project because it was, it was the fastest growing city in China and uh, it was kind of a macro representation of what happened in China in, in the light, uh, last uh, 20 years. Mm. Like, uh, uh, a city that was uh, mostly surrounded by farming and farmers uh, becoming one of the largest cities in China with a I think during this year when I was there it was a, a influx of uh, 1 million people per year into the city. Wow. So the changes were, I did my project for five years and the changes were quite formidable during those five years. Mm. It was not the same city when I first arrived and when I, my last picture, it was completely different city. So it was kind of fascinating. And did you visit North Korea from China? After 11 years in China, I kind of had enough and it also coincided with the time where I published my book mm. and I was ready to move on with my life. And for some other reasons, personal reasons, I also decided to move to, to South Korea. And uh, it's always hard to, uh, because after that project, it was a, f a couple of years of like promoting the book, uh, exhibitions and talks and stuff like this. And it's always hard to to find a story that's going to uh, bring you as much passion as yep. the first one. So yeah, for the first few years, I was just discovering stuff. And But uh, yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm always falling for the most obvious story. And uh, I was here and I was quite surprised because after one year in South Korea, I didn't get much information about North Korea. It mm. seems like, especially South Korean, they're not too keen on talking about this. Mm. And it's, it feels like it's still taboo and more taboo than what I thought. And Apart from uh, my little social network of journalists, uh, there was not much information I was getting from my from my everyday life in South Korea. So I kind of wanted to know more for myself. I mean, uh, I'm quite selfish with my project. When I do a project, is the first person I want to satisfy is myself. So I wanted to learn more about North Korea, basically. And I I, I knew about the chances to go to North Korea back then. But I didn't want to, I had the impression that every photographer that goes there end up with the same pictures and mm. you're, you're always brought to the same places. And I didn't want to be that guy. And I, I, I didn't think it was the same. Like I thought like some great photographer already been there. Probably I'm not going to bring much more to that. But then I started to discover something that I didn't know. I, I knew about defectors, but I didn't know there were so many of them in South Korea. So, uh, and I thought like those guys, they're... 
actually the key to to, to all the answers I, I might look for because I mean uh, they, they obviously they, they lived in the north they li they're living in the south so they have like a dual understanding of, of the situation uh, they can have uh, a point of view on what it is what it is to live under a uh, 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 communist uh, dictatorship but also an understanding of the differences which is what to live under a capitalistic society so I thought uh, it was interesting to 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 meet those people. Mm -hmm. So, but, I yeah, but before we get too yeah. deep into that project, because that's that's the bulk of what yeah. we're going to talk about today. But I want uh, to sort of preface that a little bit by, uh, uh, especially because of your experience in photographing the growth of cities and the change of cities in China, I just wonder um, what do you consider to be the the signature qualities of Seoul's built environment, uh, and and what did you first notice when you came to Seoul that made it different from Chongqing or, or, or Shanghai? Or even Paris. I don't want to say something negative here, but uh, no, feel free. I mean, uh, but but I felt my first feeling was um, because uh, Seoul feels like uh, most of what you see, especially the first few times uh, I was coming here. Uh, I was uh, living out of Gangnam, and I felt like kind of lack of atmosphere of of something. I mean, Shanghai, some part of Shanghai and Chongqing, they ha they're so unique. Mm. cities i mean they have some characters that's the mm -hmm. word i was looking mm -hmm. for and i felt at first like so uh lacked of that strong character that some chinese cities can have but that being said uh what i hated about shanghai was that uh when you need it it's nice if you like the city it's nice if you like parties nice if you like crowded places but if you need a bit of quiet, then it's at least a three-hour car drive or a two-hour flight just yeah. to get to something somewhere remotely quiet. Right. Uh, whereas here, I mean, I live uh, in uh, Kyonidan mm -hmm. and uh, I can just walk for five minutes. I'm in Namsan and yep. I, I can feel like I'm in the middle of a forest and yeah. I feel at peace. And uh, that's something that I really love about Seoul is how the, the city is organized because I also love that there is so many big avenues with uh, where all the shopping entertainment uh, is happening and if you just go behind the street you have some tiny streets where you yeah. can you can be quiet you can find a small cafe and i, I feel f from that point of view it's a, a very maybe it doesn't have the character that uh, that some chinese city can have like shanghai or chongqing but uh, it feels like a convenient and a nice place to be like for my everyday life i feel much more relaxed living in Seoul that I've ever felt living in any Chinese mm -hmm. city. Uh, so yeah, this I enjoy a lot. I enjoy the fact that I can have nature uh, right uh, at the doorstep of my house. So you, you really, but but as you said, in the beginning, you were based in Gangnam. You really saw mo mainly only Gangnam. Yeah. Uh, and so once you got out of there and explored more of the city, you, you got different impressions of, of the rest of the city. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no, I, I much prefer the, the northern part now of the city where... Uh, uh, around around here and Gongamun, where I have my office, and uh, not too far from here, Jeonidan. I mean, all those places where there's more like small streets and more kind of a neighborhood vibe uh, uh, makes me feel more, almost more like in Europe, where you know there's more a neighborhood and small street kind of environment, whereas uh, uh, the big big Asian city with like big streets and only big shopping malls. This is something that I don't feel too comfortable with. No, I have to say I completely agree with you. And to those listeners who haven't yet been to Seoul or to those listeners who have only been to Gangnam, I would say come north of the river and, and check out the rest of what the city has to offer because it's, uh, yeah, I tried to go um, south of the river as, as little as possible. Now, what about Pyongyang? What was your, your sense of, of that as a city? I mean, when I first arrived in the city, I was like uh, blown away. Like everything was so 
felt so clean and so beautiful and the colors i mean i felt like it was a city made with taste i mean of course i can only talk about the places i actually seen but sure i mean uh, the, the the choice of the colors for the building nothing felt i mean when you're in china in chinese city the colors they don't make sense they hurt your eyes i mean they're all about like crazy colors rainbows and mm. neons and but I feel like in North Korea, there is a lot of colors, but it's like more like pastel colors, mm. choice of colors that goes well together. And and then all these propaganda posters. I mean, if you look behind the fact that our propaganda posters, they're all like hand painted. And mm. uh, there is something that uh, almost feels a bit peaceful. I mean, uh, like I said, like if you look, look beyond the fact that it's propaganda and all of this, it's it feels like uh, calm and peaceful and because there's not too much traffic and uh, the spaces are wide. And uh, yeah, my first impression was kind of a nice impression mm. uh, before before the anxiety kicks in uh, <laughs> after a few days. But uh, but yeah, no, it's... Uh, I, I would love to be able to just uh, be free in those cities. I yeah. mean, not only Pyongyang. I mean, I... Like uh, I've been in uh, Hamhong. I don't know if I pronounce this. Oh right. yes, and on the, the uh, on the east coast. This, uh, up the this north. was quite frustrating because the city looked absolutely gorgeous. Mm. It looked it looked more real. It was not as clean, but the colors. I remember some yellow buildings, the yellow and the blues. When shooting like uh, an urban environment that felt like uh, very attractive, and but we were not allowed to shoot anything almost like so. Wait, oh gosh. I was I was very frustrated. I mean, I was keep talking with the handler, like, "Come on, come on, come on, let me shoot here." No, come on here. Wow. No, 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 no. Were there any reasons given? No, there was just uh, it's not allowed. Mm. Uh, we were allowed to go to that little hill overlooking the city and shoot from there, but that was the only place where we could shoot. And then we went to this fantastic factory that I think uh, one of the picture will be in the book and uh, available for for pre-sale with a print i mean because this factory was just fantastic mm. it was full of propaganda posters and paintings and uh i mean everything was so picturesque in that factory it looked like it could be 50 years back you know yeah. like uh, they had like the whole uh the phone where you have to actually all the rotary phone or rotary phone and i mean yeah when i was there i was like wow this is crazy i mean i don't know if if i can say this is amazing but this is just it looks so out of time you know like now, uh, as you, you said earlier, that uh, often it feels like uh, collections of photographs taken by people who visit North Korea, they often photograph the same thing. And it, it is true that uh, it's, it's hard to get that view of something different. There was one, a few years ago I was in the Netherlands and I, there was a, a, an exhibition of photographs by a photographer who wanted to take... Edo, Edo Armand? I think so. He wanted to take a, photographs with no people in the scenery. So he was waiting for that, that shot of the, the building or the station or the tower when everybody was walking out of the shot and then he would photograph it as it was completely empty. And that was a, a different... If it's uh, Edo Armand, which I think one of my favorite photographers also, I mean... This is the reason, like, when I saw his work, I was like, I'm not going to be that. It's right. just so beautiful, you know. <laughs> I, I, I found his work absolutely great. Uh, but for me, uh, I, when I was there, I wanted more to have the people because uh, I want to have something realistic. And I often hear, yeah, the streets are empty, there is nobody, and there's no traffic. But it's not true. Uh, mm. I've been to downtown where the, f the streets were filled with people. Mm. And uh, I was a couple of times in some little uh, traffic, you know, like, uh, but... Since since I try to sell it as a, some kind of documentary work, I don't want a, 
I don't want to do that, but uh, but I, I get the concept. Mm. Uh, Edo and, and his pictures are wonderful. One of the the phrases that we often hear when we see a photo gallery of um, photographs taken in North Korea or from outside North Korea looking in, we, we hear this phrase, rare glimpse, rare glimpses of North Korea, rare glimpses of, of everyday life in North Korea. And in fact, that phrase is so often used about North Korea that people um, who are you know, North Korea watchers tend to make fun of that phrase because yeah, sure. it, it's, it's, you know, there are no rare glimpses anymore because there's been it's so many... S- same glimpse for, for 25 years. <laughs> the, exactly that too. So with that as an introduction, what makes your difference, uh, your images different from other rare glimpses? I don't, uh, first of all, I mean, just my, my images of North Korea are just a tiny part of, of the book. My concept was because at first it was mostly about the portraits, and my concept was more: I want to tell the story of North Korea from the from the North Korean uh, defectors, and not even I'm not even say the story of North Korea. It's just I want to tell the story of North Korean defectors. I want and the 15 stories that are in the book. Uh, I try to be I try to find like eclectic and different stories. Basically, I spend couple hours uh, just interviewing each defector sometimes more and uh, we were talking about a lot of things we were talking about the life in North Korea the escape uh, they did and how they assimilate in South Korea so for me that was like the three angles and from those three angles uh, according to each defector I chose like okay in that in his story I think that's the most interesting part and sometimes I mean a defector had many interesting parts I mean most of them all the stories are quite amazing so I, I had to choose one part of the story because the other part was similar to another defector. So the 15 story that I have, I try to focus on some specific things that tells like one side of the story of a defector. Sometimes it's about the escape. Sometimes it's about the experience in the north. Sometimes it's about the, how they assimilate in the south. And I also wanted to, because I, I think the same thing, like when you're not familiar with North Korea, the defector, you, the simplistic images is uh, on top of all the nuclear thing. When you hear about defector, you, you think about a guy who, who's, uh, who's starving and just like crossing mm. the river to eat, and that might be a, a big part of the defector. But that's not the, that's not everybody. And some defector come from Pyongyang or from other big city, and they, they live uh, for many different reasons. Sometimes very idealistic reasons. Sometimes just because uh, they're they're the social uh, level kind of droppings down because of something they did. Uh, so it can be many other reasons. It's not always by by despair of starvation. So I, I also wanted to bring that up in the book and have some different point of view. I mean, I think two, even three or four of the defector we have in the book were people that had a, a quite a comfortable life in the North. And I think it's interesting to hear their point of view, you know. And, and I think it's also important to hear like... Uh, uh, in the south, they don't necessarily think they have a much better life. It's it's different, of course. They don't regret the freedom and the access to to information. But uh, sometimes the capitalistic uh, reality is the 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 economical competition of of a lifestyle in the capitalistic world can be quite uh, quite hard on a man, uh, especially mm. when he never faced that before. So, I also wanted to bring that up and. Uh, kind of uh, have the reader think about, you know, we we live in a world, we also live in a world of uh, capitalistic uh, propaganda. We we live in a world where it's important to make money. We see advertising every day. Uh, we, we kind of brainwash in a different way. And I thought it was interesting to hear 
their perspective to make you realize like, uh, okay, I mean, not saying that life in North Korea is good, far from that, but just give it a bit of perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, why do they struggle? Why do they think uh, the capitalistic kind of challenges are, are so hard on one person? And make you think like uh, maybe there's a better way in between those words to, to think about how we live our life. So I think that was also uh, quite a learning curve for me to, mm-hmm. to, to hear to hear those stories and those struggles that uh, we don't necessarily think of uh, growing up in a capitalistic world. Now, you said that there are 15 stories of 15 different effectors in the book. Uh, am I right? And I haven't seen the book yet. So am I right in understanding that it's not only photographs? There's also some text in there as well? Yeah. So um, basically, there is 15 portraits and uh, the, the process of the portraits is quite important. We, we can talk about it mm. after. And for each portrait, there is a story that I've written uh, since since I was very involved in that project. Usually, I work with writer, but since I, I was very moved and uh, and I learned a lot through those the stories, I really wanted to write it. They're they're quite small. I mean, some of them are just a few paragraphs. Some of them are a full page. Uh, but in general, they're they're not very big stories. But they have they're very specific. And uh, I think for me, if if I consider I'm the one reading the book. And I, when I arrived in South Korea, I didn't have much knowledge about the whole conflict and everything. And I think it would be an interesting book for me to have when I first arrived here mm. to learn. So, and I think I did it in that perspective. Like, uh, I don't, I don't want to be an expert. Uh, I definitely don't have the knowledge of some journalists. Uh, and I'm sure, like you guys, who've been working on the stories for many many years I, I want the story to be available for for a large audience mm-hmm. especially people that think of north korea only through the kims and the nuclear weapons yeah uh, my goal was to give a more humanistic approach to the to the north korean story and so can people relate more to the to the people more than to the regime and understand where they come from, you know? Now, given what you've just said, it's interesting that you chose the name of this project, Unperson. Can you tell a little bit about that? How did you choose that name? Obviously, it comes from uh, 1984. It's it's so strange for me to have two countries, North and South, and for North Korean, of course, it's forbidden to live in the South, and it's such a crazy adventure just to come here. Mm. Uh, especially that they can they can obviously apart from a very few come here directly it's the same thing for south korea and they cannot live in the north so it, it, it's a country it's it's so unique in the world it's the same people uh, the same race the same history the same uh, the same everything but they're separated by by this the biggest wall we ever seen in the world i mean forget trump's wall you know mm. it's, this wall is really the one that only uh, a handful of people just cross you know and also because once you leave North Korea, you, you, I mean, some people come back because they, they, they get arrested or some people decide to come back, but you almost like, uh, you don't exist in North mm. Korea anymore. I mean, if you come back, you're uh, most likely being thrown in a, in a political camp. So, uh, I thought it was interesting. This parallel was, uh, with George Orwell about suddenly becoming somebody that, that doesn't exist anymore. Like you wiped out from, from, from the memory. And I think for some of the families there also, when part of the one member leaves and escape North Korea, it's, it's become very hard for them. And mm. they kind of try to, yeah, to forget about that person. Cause I mean, they cannot talk about it. Uh, the, and some of them, I mean, I, I know about um, some defectors uh, I've been talking to recently where his father is still uh, in North Korea. And because he left, you know, his father before had a good government position. And because he left, uh, he, he lost all his privilege and now he's having a hard time living. So he, 
I mean, all of this saying, like, uh, I thought it was an interesting parallel and kind of, it sells well, I guess. It was a good name. Mm. It's quite common, of course, uh, has been over the years, that the George Orwell's books, both 1984 and also Animal Farm, are uh, compared to North Korea. In fact, I don't know, some listeners may have heard this before, but uh, when I first came to Korea in uh, 1996, I was living on the border with uh, very close to North Korea, and I was reading Animal Farm for the first time in my life, and then accidentally on my television, I was changing the channel, and I found the North Korean channel which the North Koreans broadcast into South Korea. The South Korean military tries to mm. block the signal, but for some reason on my TV, I was living in a special area where the jamming signal didn't work. And so there I was watching North Korean TV and reading Animal Farm, and I thought, oh, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's like the book come to life, you know. Mm. Uh, so it, that's quite common. But uh, what I found interesting um, I watched a, a short film, uh, the link that you sent me, uh, talking about your project. And in that film, you also talked about the way that North Koreans who come to South Korea also become unpersons in South Korea in a way. Could you yeah. tell a little bit about that? Yeah, because uh, th- th- it comes back from what I was saying at the beginning. Like I have this pressure, uh, this impression that North defectors and North Korea in general is quite taboo among uh, the people I meet in general in South Korea. And and then I realized, talking with North Korean defectors, that it was very hard for them to to assim- assimilate mm-hmm. here. And uh, even, I mean, at the end of the day, most of the one I, I met, they just stay in a circle of people that is either only North Korean, and even the young ones, uh, the one that can speak English and stuff, they end up having more foreign friends in South Korea than actually South Korean friends. Because mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 hard to understand still for me, like why there is this kind of refusal to accept North Korean people in South Korea. Like, I mean, for sure, they, they struggle uh, in terms of employment. I mean, they, they're never going to have the same access to job market as South Korean do. And their accent uh, is always uh, kind of selling them out uh, if they want to pass out of South Korean. And uh, same goes for dating. I mean, in every day's, everybody's life, it becomes quite important at some point. And mm. if just the fact that you're from North Korea prevents you from, from dating uh, South Korean, it, it makes everything a little bit harder. So at the end of the day, lo- a lot of them, I have the impression, gives up, they, they give up and they end up uh, in a group of, of North Koreans. So, yeah. which, is, which is kind of sad because you, you feel like uh, it's the same country. I mean... I assimilated a little bit to to you know like North African in France like mm. uh, they they want to be part of the society and people say no of course we we're, we're not racist but uh, still when they show up for a job interview or or when they play on the national football team yeah yeah I mean it's good when they win but uh, yeah, right. when they lose like you know, <laughs> it's kind of unfair but I mean uh, here the difference is they're they're the same culture they speak the same language. Uh, if it was not for the last uh, few decades, uh, it would be the same country. Now, you, you also spoke earlier uh, about the, um, the when North Koreans come to South Korea that there is often a, a danger for their family members uh, back in North Korea. So that makes me wonder, is there not a danger in photographing uh, portraits of North Koreans and then publishing them in a book or exhibiting them? Yeah, that was the, my first concern. I mean, uh, when I first imagined uh, the project, I was like, yeah, let's document the life in South Korea. And I realized quickly... Uh, that's not going to be possible because e- even if some of them were willing to talk, uh, they were not willing to uh, d- d- divulge where they, l- where they live or where they work. So that's why I ended up creating the studio at the FPC and inviting them there. 
they felt safe coming to the FPC because I mean all all the factors know. Uh, so the the foreign press center oh, okay. on the other side of the street. That's yep. where I created the studio ah. and uh, photographed all of them there. We contacted a lot of the factors and we had to find the one that uh, accepted. Uh, so most of the one that are featured in the book, they either have no direct uh, family members mm. back in. Uh, a lot of them, especially the young one, the defect with their mother or yeah. with their family, so that makes it easier. And uh, for some of them, it's a bit more complicated, but they're still uh, willing to talk because uh, they think it's important. Uh, mm. Sharing sharing the, the stories is more important than some of their family. I mean, it's it's we tell them this is what's going to happen. We're right. going to show your face, your story. So we completely understand if they don't accept, and a lot of them don't. Mm. Uh, and if they accept, uh, they know they know the game or they're or their families out of, uh, of North Korea. But yeah, it's, it's a sensitive situation, but uh, we, we try to put all the facts in front of the defector before we, we started the project. Roughly speaking, what percentage of defectors who you spoke to were willing to go through and have their, their photographs taken? I mean, uh, I cannot say for sure because I, I work with um, with a fixer and mm-hmm. she's, uh, I mean, most of the one that... Uh, say no from the from the get-go she right. didn't even bring it up to me right but some of them they were not sure there was i mean i ended up meeting 20 22 defectors for some other reason that i can explain later i only choose to use 15 stories but yeah some of them really wanted to and they ended up they said no because uh, and uh, most of the time it was family issues that yeah were there any who came to you later on and said, even after you took the photographs and said, look, I know I agreed to do this, but uh, I've changed my mind. Suddenly, I don't feel safe anymore. Can you take my pictures out of the book? Not that I know of. And to be very honest, very honest also, like a good half, even two-thirds of the one that I have in the book are defectors that for most of my readers, they're not going to know, but for you and for a lot of journalists, uh, it's the fact that I've been talking a lot to media. And ah, so they already have some profile. Yeah. I mean, the first defector that I met for an interview and she, I mean, for another reason, she's not in the book, but, you know, Kian Soli, I mean, she's she's been everywhere. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, uh, the girl with seven names yeah, uh, the, I mean, the, who gave the first TED talk as, a, as an yeah. Oscar defector. Yeah. It was a bit complicated because, I mean, I was starting the project and the photo I took over was very different from the aesthetic point of view from the other one so uh, and we didn't have time to shoot her again because she's a busy busy girl she she was actually one of the very very first guests on this podcast maybe the number one guest on the podcast before i took over so some years maybe six years ago when uh, kurt ashen my predecessor was hosting this podcast mm. she was uh, i mean a story is amazing i mean yeah. i recommend a book to everybody who's interested in, in the subject because i mean her stories is, is interesting she speaks good english mm-hmm. it's it's, it's I mean, a lot of media, just every time there is a North Korean thing, they go to her for, for a quote. Now, you also um, include in your project some photographs of parts of China, Thailand, Mongolia, etc. How did you choose those locations? After all those interviews, it's funny because the first few ones, I'm kind of discovering, oh, you did that, you went through this. And after five or six interviews, I kind of knew all the basic routes. And uh, I was telling this, uh, the defectors, so did you go through there or there? And also in the meanwhile, I, I worked quite a bit for the past few years with the Wall Street Journal on uh, different defector stories and also uh, even uh, did a story on that guy who, uh, who was a smuggler between China and Laos and mm. who ended up uh, escaping to Jeju and I think now he's living in South Korea. It's quite a fascinating story. Wow. Uh, also doing stories on uh, on uh, people from the church who helped the escapes. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I started to have a, 
pretty good understanding on uh, how to escape, uh, <laughs> not becoming an expert. But but uh, what I found fascinating in those stories uh, was like uh, first how long they are in general, uh, and uh, and how one defector can go through so many different landscape just to get from point A to point B, which are I mean when you think about it, we we drive for uh, a little bit more than an hour and we're yeah. in North Korea, and same thing when you're in Pyongyang, you drive south. It's so close to here. I mean, we could literally uh, have a good day of work and get there, mm. you know. Like, uh, but uh, for most of the factors, it takes uh, days, if not weeks, if not years, to come to South Korea, and they they start often crossing like icy rivers between China and North Korea. Then they go through this crazy, scary Chinese cities. If they, if they're not caught into some human trafficking network uh, they're escaping they have to hide their identity uh, sometimes learn chinese then they have to understand uh, i mean some of them now is uh, if they pay very expensive they know exactly where they're going but uh, the one that escaped just by a pure decision just to escape to china they have no idea that they have to get all the way to uh, mongolia or thailand to get a real chance to go to south korea safely right. So it's it's such a trip when you think about it. And to go to Mongolia, you have to cross the Gobi Desert yeah. at night, which is absolutely frightening and fascinating. Mm. If you go to Thailand, you have to cross through the Mekong River, sometimes through Laos, sometimes through Burma. Now they have those boats that go directly from China to Thailand. Uh, and I mean, I, f I found like it, it's fascinating that you basically, it's not a cross-word travel, but it's still so many yeah. uh, thousands of miles just to get to uh, the other side of the border. Since uh, when I started to think uh, this project as a book, I thought like uh, it's nice to have the portraits and the stories, but you kind of need a breather between all those crazy stories. And I thought like in all the stories you hear about all those landscapes and these fascinating places, and I thought it would be interesting to revisit those places. And this time, yeah, I kind of chose not to show too many people in those photos mm -hmm. and to have this kind of empty landscape of where... From where they left, I mean, we start with some photos in, in Pyongyang to where they arrived, there's some photos of Seoul. Mm. And in between, so yeah, you, you start with the propaganda posters and you arrive with the propaganda advertising. Ah, uh, yes. I thought that was interesting. And then in between, you go through, I mean, there's some pictures of Beijing, there's uh, pictures of Shenyang, which has a big, uh, both South Korean and North Korean community. There is some pictures of like some secondary Chinese cities, uh, but yeah, when they travel fast, they go through uh, Guiyang, Kunming, uh, arrive at the border down in the south. I mean, it's crazy to think, yeah, the icy river, Chinese city, right. uh, jungle, uh, tropics, and then you end up in like this uh, prison in Bangkok. Mm. Uh, Completely different climates. Yeah. And then suddenly you're in a flight and then Seoul, you know, right. wow, it's like. It's crazy. Uh, so I, I thought like, um, I don't think people realize that when they think about uh, people defecting from North Korea to South Korea, that those people go through so many different landscapes. So I thought it was an interesting way to document kind of the the stories and give some time to, to breeze in between all those very po poignant stories yeah. in the book.
Now, in the last 20 years, there has been, well, to my mind, there's been a lot of attention uh, on uh, North Korean refugees and their uh, their struggles. Uh, there have been uh, documentary films, feature movies, books, a UN Commission of Inquiry report, uh, different photo exhibitions, a book of children's drawings by uh, one young North Korean defector, made a record of his journey in children's drawings. In short, there's a lot of refugee stories that have been told. Was it difficult for you to find a new way or a new angle to tell their stories? I mean, when you start a photography project, only in rare cases you're doing something for the first time. So uh, at some point you have to accept that you're going to do something that uh, people have done before. But uh, I have to say, like, uh, I've many books about North Korea, many books about the DMZ, uh, a lot of uh, great written books about North Korea, about defectors, defectors' journey, uh, about the defector themselves. There, I haven't seen a, a photography book that. Uh, kind of show more really the, the faces of these defectors mm. which stories that because uh, some people they want they, they want to read like a full uh, two three hundred pages book about a defector but some right. people they want to have the, I mean especially in the current world like they, they don't have time for this yeah. they want to learn like quickly so I thought like just going uh, slightly into the the subject and have uh, different stories on one page with just portraits so you can really because these portraits are also quite close, so you can really get close to the mm. defectors' faces. And also, what I did when we did these portraits, we were doing the interview before and tried to go to the stories as, as personal as possible. And after we created this link, uh, I would go really uh, straight, uh, very close to their face and, and do that portraits. And I right. think like uh, for some of them, it worked quite well because you can really see uh, the story playing on their face. Mm. And that was kind of uh, also part of the reason I did that. There is, uh, you do bring a very uh, an unusual visual aesthetic to uh, to this project. Um, not only the uh, the extreme close up, but also you have a, uh, an unusual way of, of developing the photographs. What would you call it? I, I I'm sort of thinking of like kind of an analog minimalism. But uh, what what's, what's your name for the the process that you use? That was the other thing. Like so, when I started to do the project, since I couldn't do like a very documentary work, I I, I had to find a way, an aesthetic that works uh, for the concept of, of doing this project. So mm. that was a very important part of the project, actually. I work with this uh, large format camera, uh, which is an analog camera taking like four by five films usually. And uh, I used uh, these Polaroids that uh, actually uh, are not made anymore. So I was lucky. Like, oh, boy. Yeah, it was uh, the last few batches. But yeah, the idea was uh, it's like uh, Polaroids from Fuji. Mm-hmm. Uh, instant photos or whatever you call them and um, when you shoot with them usually uh, you do the photo and immediately after uh, two minutes after you basically you, you have the photo the physical photo in front of you right and so it's called like peel apart polaroids right these are not the small polaroids that, that some people may have seen uh, in the, 70s, yeah. you, the, the small ones that you uh, take a photo and then you just shake it uh, in no, the in they're the like air, uh, more like yeah four by five inch right and there's a paper that you peel off yeah yeah and so on on one side you have the photo and the other side you have this kind of negative mm. but uh, for the Fuji, I mean, the, the negative part, you're supposed to discard it. I mean, it's it's kind of stuck to some papers and it's usually, it's, it's not supposed to be used and that's the whole trick. Ah. North Korean defectors in South Korea are not supposed to be here and we come back to what we were talking mm. before. Not supposed to be here because uh, they're not supposed to leave North Korea and also they're not very well accepted here in the society. So I thought by using this negative, and to use this negative, I mean, you have to 
Uh, first of all, you have to shoot the photo a certain way so the Polaroid is a little bit underexposed without getting too technical. But anyway, after that, you have to bring the this kind of dirty paper, clean it with some kind of detergent mm-hmm. under a certain way, but uh, not too much detergent because otherwise the whole image disappears. So. Right. And it creates this like kind of negative that is not supposed to exist and it's imperfect, it's scratched. There is some chemical spills that you can clearly see on some of those portraits. Mm. But uh, that was exactly what I was uh, aiming for. And I thought like those portraits uh, with this kind of special feeling different from from any portraits you normally see uh, kind of express the concept behind the project of uh, them being here and not supposed to be here. Uh, and I always, I, I love, I mean, in all my work, I love to work with uh, a different uh, analogic process. And uh, this particular process is called like um, reclaiming the negative of Polaroid. Mm. And that's also the name of the the, the movie uh, that was made for the project. Uh, can we share a link to that movie sure. uh, on the, the, the podcast website? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's great. You talk a lot about the, the process. Yeah. Uh, is it a long uh, and difficult process doing that? Uh, it's not, I mean... If you compare it to, to digital uh, photography, mm. for sure it's different. Uh, basically, but this is how I work uh, for all my projects. I, I like to take my time and I don't like to shoot too much. So for each defectors that came, we only shot 10 photos. Because you've only got a limited batch of these instant photographs. Th- there right? is this also, and also each portrait, you know, you, you set up the person. Mm. You it, It's more like a painting. You, you make sure they have the expression and stuff. And when you have what you want, it's like, okay, stop. They're not moving, then you have to slide the film in the camera and count to three so they don't blink. So the process is much more slower. For each photo, it takes about 10 minutes. Oh, so the so, exposure time. No, no, not, not the exposure time, the whole process. Ah. Uh, no, the exposure time is just like any photos, like mm. click and gone, you know. But what for me, the, the, the click is just the last part of the photograph. Uh, what's oh, important okay. is just the few minutes before the person is in the right mood. Uh, looking exactly right, uh, composing the shot, and then at the end, just like, clack, and you have it. So uh, at the end, I only had 10 photos, and for me, 10 photos is perfect because I don't have to, when when I shoot digital for a commercial project, I end up with hundreds of thousands of photos, and I was like, you spend so much time just like going through all of them. And, right. and you have 10 photos, and you immediately, and you have to stand photos on the table already printed, and so the, the, the defectors can be here, and also we can discuss, okay, what do you think which picture do you think represents you the best? And and we also had this exchange after that. And I think it's also, it makes them feel more comfortable to see the photo right after. Even after the first photo, they can see, okay, this is how it looks like. And then we discuss like for the second photo, maybe we should do this. So they feel like that doesn't really rep- represent me. I prefer this angle or I prefer this. So it's also, it's not just like me taking a photo and deciding everything. It's more like an exchange between me and the person. And uh, so it, it makes both of us feel a little bit closer, and I think that was an important part of the process. You uh, so you start with a with a Polaroid instant photograph. You take off the negative. The negative is what you use to mm. make the photographs that go in the book. Mm. The Polaroid that you normally keep, did you give that to the defectors? I, I think we kept it first for all the editing process. Uh, but my idea is, I mean. Hopefully, if the COVID word is as long as that, but uh, when we're going to start to do the launch events in Seoul, mm-hmm. uh, I, I certainly want to uh, in- invite uh, as much as many of the defectors that part of the book and give them the book and give them a, a print of the photo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if they want, I mean, the, the Polaroid. The Polaroid is quite small. Uh, for me, I, I would prefer to give them the final photo. Ah. Also, because uh, like I exp- 
I mean, this is again getting technical, but when you shoot the Polaroid, it's slightly underexposed, so the negative is exposed well. So okay. Sometimes this Polaroid can feel a little bit uh, too dark for uh, for the photo to be as nice as the final result. So this this project is uh, not only a book; it's also a short film and an exhibition. Uh, the, the big three there. Um, tell us a bit about the exhibition. When and where can people go and, and have a look at it? I mean, uh, it's not going to be one exhibition. Uh, hopefully, it's going to be many, many because mm. <laughs> uh, uh, we want to uh, spread. The... Actually, right now, uh, the project is exhibited in Tel Aviv, uh, quite uh, randomly, but oh. part of a, a prize called the Meter, Meter Photo Awards. We have, I mean, I was very disappointed in that, but also very happy. But one of the portraits is going to be exhibited at the National Portrait Gallery in London. But uh, because of COVID, it's yeah. going to be a virtual exhibition, which right. is a very sad. I mean, my dream to have a photo exhibited at the National Portrait Gallery, but sure. yeah, it's going to be online only. But apparently they're going to have like 3D modeling of the, the, the National Portrait Gallery and the photo hanging. Ah. So it could be nice to, at least I can see it myself. Yeah, exactly. The good news is everyone can see it. But uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of sad not, uh, not to have it uh, physically. But the plan is that there's going to be hopefully an exhibition in Paris and in, in the gallery. Uh, there's a few photography festival planned for next year in Cortona in uh, Italy. Mm. And uh, a few still unknown, but yeah, the plan is once the book is released for the next two years after that to exhibit as much as possible in as many different places as possible and maybe do some talks and promote the, the project and the book and uh, yeah. Now you mentioned the book, uh, which people can go and pre-order on your website, uh, timfranco.com. Tell us why you want them to pre-order it before it's actually published. Uh, this is also the reality of... Uh, the artist economy these days, unless you're a big name magnum photographer, as you can, uh, t just so everybody know, making a photography book is, you don't do it for profit. I mean, right. there's no profit. It's it's such an investment. I should point out that you have a, actually a, a commercial photography business on the side, which yeah. is named, not surprisingly, propagandastudio.asia. <laughs> so people can look at that, propagandastudio.asia for your commercial work. Yeah. But this is more like a labor of love, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, photojournalism and documentary, uh, this is how I got started. But uh, after a while, when you want to start a family and have right. a real life, you, you need to real you realize that uh, you cannot survive uh, and have a... a, a acceptable a comfortable life with photojournalism so I, I do i do commercial photography mm. and also because it allows me to be free in my my project and to drag a project for as long as possible i mean this is what allows me to not do a project in two weeks but in three four years right producing a, a photographic book costs a lot of money not counting the money uh, that uh, is used to produce the actual work right the printing the the design the color grading, the distribution. I mean, so the reason we do a pre-sale campaign is to gather a little bit of funds uh, so we're more comfortable uh, when we go for printing and, and all of this stuff. So, so it's like a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, this is, is exactly that. So I, actually, uh, there is a website dedicated for, for, for this called Ulul. So it's ulule.com slash unperson. And um, also the, the books that people uh, can order there, they're all going to be signed by me, mm. uh, which is not going to be the case, obviously, after when you buy it right. uh, directly from Thames and Hudson. So that's a promotion. And we also have some packages uh, with uh, original limited prints. 
I can't remember the prices, but for like 55 euros or 80 euros, you have different kind of print size and uh, even much bigger print size for mm. more. But this is up to you. Uh, but yeah, uh, there is still a couple of weeks going into the campaign and uh, it's just, I mean, this is the way we do things now. I know it's kind of uh, it's kind of disappointing for people to buy the book to only get it a few months after, but it's also kind of telling the people you're, you're going to be part of the project. And right, it's an investment, you. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of the people feel like uh, the, the people pre-buy the book, they're kind of part of, part of the project mm. and uh, helping me out a lot. So thank you to all of you that <laughs> uh, are going to go through Ulul and help me out for this. Well, the, the photos, uh, they are quite stunning and the book looks like it's uh, going to be quite spectacular based on the preview that I've seen on the website. So we do, uh, I would encourage everyone to go and have a look at uh, timfranco.com to uh, see some of the previews uh, or also at the uh, Ulul, uh, hang on, ulul.com slash unperson uh, to have yeah. a look at that. We have a, a wonderful designer. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the cover, but I'm, I'm very happy with it. And uh, I think the the design inside and uh, we we had a very we went through different concept and I'm, I'm very happy with uh, what uh, we came out with and I'm very excited about what it's going to look like in the end well congratulations on your project and thanks once again for coming on the show today Tim well, Franco thank you for welcoming me uh, ladies and gentlemen that wraps it up for today's podcast don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and once again please check out the website nknews.org where you will find the best and most up-to-date specialist journalism on all matters related to North Korea our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chatter Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.